and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub. Series 7, Session 2. It's Thursday the 14th of October 2021. Welcome back. Uh, this session's titled Understanding COVID Positive Care Pathways Part 1 Risk Stratification. So last week, Series 7 of ECHO began with a call to action for primary care to consider whether we are ready, willing and able to um, manage uh, COVID care in our community and with our patients. This week, we'll kick off an eight-session series of COVID care education through the Project ECHO um, platform with the aim of improving confidence in managing COVID in your communities. So while our local COVID care pathways are still being developed and the, at the regional and sub-regional levels, there are elements of COVID care that will be fairly standardised across our region. And it's this content that we'll aim to bring you through our suite of didactic presentations each week. Then in our case-based discussions, we'll aim to bring your grounded experiences of bringing um, community-based COVID care to life. We'll be asking those how to in context and where in my area and who do I call questions when it comes to pathways, supports, escalation points, referrals and discharge. Things are changing rapidly and in the coming weeks, we'll be inviting those of you taking on COVID care to bring us your cases in the spirit of all teach, all learn. And my job will be to make this as easy and rewarding as possible for you. So please do reach out for me um, to me. I'll get the guys to put my email in the chat, bianca.forrester at westvicphn.com.au. Reach out, just tell me I've got a case. I can give you a buzz. You can just dictate the case to me and it will be take, could take five minutes or we might chat through some stuff. Um, but I want to make it as easy for you as possible because I know how busy you all are, but it'd be really valuable to um, learn from your experiences. In the meantime, please just come along with all your curious questions and problem-solving ideas for our interactive sessions. Today, we'll be kicking off with our COVID care suite, discussing the COVID care pathways and that risk stratification process in the early assessment phase and those early stages of the COVID patient journey. Our case vignette will seek to get you thinking about low-risk care pathways, what does that mean um, and what does that involve, and we'll be focusing on the key question for this session um, based on a case vignette, what else would I need to know about this patient and consider before agreeing to take on their care? So let's get underway. And what have we got on for today. Well, welcome to our panel for this morning. Uh, uh, yes, that's me. And I've, and hopefully you've just had a look at the data. So I think we predicted that we would uh, hit 90% across our region by Monday. And we certainly did, um, which is exciting. Some of those ones in red are those who are already double 70 dosed and in yellow, double 80 dosed. And in light red, I've done some kind of uh, vaccine tipping and tipped the ones that I think are going to hit um, double dose 70 by next Monday. So I hope you had a good look at those charts. Um, that information actually so we can chuck it in the chat, but if you just Google COVID vaccination by LGA, it's Commonwealth data, and you can look at the way through the bigger charts. All right. So we've got Kate Graham, GP Clinical Editor of Health Pathways and COVID Clinical Advisor to the Westwick PHN, giving you a rapid update of um, COVID um, in primary care. Callum Mags is joining us. Um, he's the clinical lead of VIXIS Bowen Health and Bowen Public um, Health Unit. And he's going to give us a bit of a third dose update and tell us about the status of VIXIS and how VIXIS can help with any of those queries. Um, we might also have a bit about the medical exemption um, that we might want to ask him too. And we're going to be um, joined by Karen Ahrens, Fractional Specialist at the Grampians Public Health Unit, who's going to take us through our echo didactic this morning, which is really focusing on that deeper learning around risk stratification and COVID care pathways. Um, Karen's also bringing a case. Um, she's actually had about 450 of them, so there's no shortage of cases there, although we'd like you to bring us cases too. Um, but she'll be um, throwing uh, forward a case to really get our grounded experiences and um, COGS thinking. Uh, we'll have five 
finish with an update from Linda Govan, our regional senior manager of Westwick PHN, to provide us an update of what the PHN will be doing to um, provide support and also any updates around what's happening with our health system. Um, we're joined by Dr. Carolyn Bartolo. She's an infectious diseases physician of both um, at both Bowen Health and Ballarat Health Service, um, but she's coming with her Bowen Health and Bowen Southwest Public Health Unit hat on this morning. Um, and Dr. Aaron Block, uh, infectious diseases physician at Grampians Public Health Unit and, Graham, and also Ballarat um, Health Service. We'll, we'll be on panel for the discussion for our ECHO um, Interactive. So with that, I'm going to hand over to you, Kate. Thanks. Good morning. So um, what we're seeing this week is a really interesting sort of picture in the numbers um, in that the REF or reproduction numbers are dropping down slightly statewide, which is really good to see, but we'll see where that trends. Um, the n- vaccination numbers are great. Uh, what's really worrying me at the moment is just having a look at some of the disadvantaged communities and really sort of seeing how COVID is highlighting some of the other gaps within our health um, services, our health distribution and just sort of general equity issues. So thinking about those communities um, within our practices. So in terms of what we've got for vaccinations, we've got our third doses, um, sort of that um, guidance is now all in place. Um, So I'm assuming that most of you will have had lots of questions about that. Um, Mandatory vaccinations are sort of very, very close to being in place now. So hopefully practices have um, that all set in. Um, I'll just go on to the next slide, possibly. Yeah, so um, this is sort of really where there have been most changes this week. So the clearance of cases and um, primary close contacts, that's become much more of a passive process from a GP perspective. Um, And when you're waiting for sort of those results. Once a primary close contact has their day 13 negative tests, they're fine to exit um, and clearance of cases is done at day 14 post their positive test result. And this is something to really sort of be thinking about in terms of when you're thinking about COVID positive care pathways, because from our perspective as GPs and when you're wanting to risk assess and stratify and thinking about when people are entering into pathways, um, as Karen will go to in lots more detail, what you want to know is what stage of the illness they're at so that you can really target when they're going to be at most risk And that's not going to be at all related to when they had the test in their illness. Um, So whereas the test is going to be related to when they're actually cleared, um, we want to know when they started being symptomatic. Testing times are becoming a little bit longer um, and that's something to sort of keep an eye out for and thinking about that risk period as well for people so that if they've had symptoms for a couple of days already, If they're not a priority group, if they're not a primary close contact, thinking about sort of putting uh, into place some of that risk guidance for them, giving them information about what to do should their symptoms worsen, because many of them may then be day five, six uh, by the time they get their results. Um, The GP furlough matrix um, or matrix risk assessment um, is now out. There will be links to that um, there. That is not a document that is used in isolation. So while you see this first part of the document, there's a second part of the document, which then goes into what you do, depending on whether you're green, yellow, orange or red, uh, but also the cleaning guidance for workplaces. 
And so this is sort of what we want practices to be doing initially, um, is going through every interaction that a case and staff have had within the practice and kind of figuring out where they fit on this little matrix um, and thinking about what cleaning needs to take place within that cleaning guidelines for workplaces, which is a much lesser set of cleaning than was previously required. Um, other things that are sort of taking place and that are becoming more talked about, rapid antigen tests and their role. So there's a little bit of guidance now on the Department of Health website um, around rapid antigen tests in workplaces and what to do if you have been using rapid antigen tests. The notification form of a positive rapid antigen test is really important to complete while waiting for that formal um, sort of positive PCR secondary test. Um, so on the 1st of November, it's estimated that we will have guidelines out for rapid antigen tests in home settings. And that's going to be something that will really change management and um, be something to think about to sort of forward thing. But um, I'd really recommend that everyone, if you get a chance to sort of have a look at last night's RSEGP webinar, it was recorded um, with uh, Dr. Jane Munro, who's a paediatrician who now works for the Department of Health. Uh, she went through the risk matrix um, in quite a lot of detail and answered a lot of GP queries on that. So that's all from me for the morning, but I'll hang around. Um, the COVID care resources are all sort of up online there. There'll be some links. Safer Care Guidelines will be up next week, hopefully, and may provide a bit more clarity around some of the issues that we've been having. And that's all from me for the morning. Great. Thank you, Kate. And don't forget Health Pathways. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, we're, what are we doing now? Callum Mags. Callum Mags is here. So um, thanks for joining us, Callum. Um, oh, there you are. Wonderful. Thanks. Um, so, um, quick update about VIXIS. So, our uh, VIXIS at barwinhealth.org.au email is going to go offline soon because there's a new centralised referral process coming online with the DHS. Um, we'll circulate the, <coughs> the website for that as soon as we have it. We'll have a new email just for queries um, that will be divided into paediatric and adult, um, which will be able to circulate hopefully next week for any queries. Um, just an update on the recent ATAGI advice about um, third doses. Um, so to clarify, look, it's, there's no shortage of supply of vaccines. So um, if you squeeze someone through and you know they didn't quite fit the criteria, you can always play coy because you know I think it's a good problem that we have people wanting more vaccines. Um, but basically, um, the recommendation is that it's the third dose is an mRNA vaccine um, that is two to six months after their second dose, unless there's like you know some extenuating circumstances. So if you think that they're high risk of exposure or quite immunocompromised or, you know, there's certain timing with their chemotherapies or whatever, then it's fine to give it four weeks after their second dose as well. And you can give AstraZeneca as a third dose if they had AstraZeneca as their first two doses. Um, it can be a bit confusing with the, the actual types of immunosuppression. So um, the sort of benchmark to consider is well, anyone with underlying hematologic malignancy is um, a candidate, but anyone who's on the equivalent of 20 milligrams of prednisolone a day long term um, as is sort of your guide. Um, and any anyone that's on B cell uh, depleting agents, if it's unclear how immunosuppressed they are, just have a chat to their specialist or email us or give me a call or whatever. Um, and 
we can go through what it is and work out whether they should have a third dose or not. Um, it's not recommended for people on standard TNF inhibitors for you know rheumatoid or um, inflammatory bowel disease, but no one's going to come back and yell at you if you give them a third dose, to be honest. It's just the ATAGI guidelines. Um, with regards to um, exemptions, um, yeah, it, they're you know, extremely rare. I don't think I've – I haven't come across an arm that couldn't cop a jab um, so for a medical reason, uh, not permanently anyway. There's, there's reasons to give temporary exemptions, so, you know, active or, or recent um, myopericarditis, um, someone who had COVID who got treated with certain treatments. Um, but even if they had COVID and they didn't get any monoclonal antibodies, um, you can give them a jab, you know, once they've recovered from their illness, that's fine. Um, I think someone just mentioned something about HIV in the chat there. So we'll probably be... We know most of the HIV patients in the region and we'll probably be contacting them um, from Barwon Health as well uh, if they have a CD4 count less than 250 um, because we'll know all those people. Um, but, yeah, feel free to get in contact with us if you've got questions about that. Um, can, can I ask, can we make a, an assumption that anyone that's had the anaphylaxis and, um, you know, those rare kind of um, allergies um, who've been to you at Vixis, Will you write them an exemption letter or will you have written back to their GP so that the information is documented? So, it, this, so with the VIXIS referral process going central, there'll probably be uh, automatic replies from them saying that um, any GP or physician can write a temporary exemption. Um, there's no problems with that if they've had anaphylaxis, what, you know, if it's while they're waiting for an opinion from us. Um, if they see us, um, we can do it, but um, if they're not going to get to us in time because of a backlog from referrals, mm -hmm. feel free to write them a temporary exemption just until they um, get some more expert advice. Okay. Um, and so then can I just clarify with the, um, if they've had AZ, if they've been vaccinated with AZ, are you saying that by, we should be going for the mRNA as their third um, and only if they want the AZ, we do the third as an AZ? Yeah. So mRNA is first line for a jab. Um, but people that have had two doses of AZ can have a third dose of AZ if that's what's available as well. Okay. So if they have the AZ and they go to the mRNA, there was some reports that that's a kind of pretty, that they then get pretty bad side effects. What are, your, what are you seeing? Oh, the, the, the jury's out on that. There, are, there were two different, well, two different cohorts, uh, one in Spain, one in um, the UK, and they had conflict, completely conflicting data yeah. about adverse um, events. And, even in the UK data, the increase in adverse events was an increase in the mild sort of adverse events. So, right, okay. A day, a day of you know headache bed and rest. Okay. Yeah, and bed rest. But also, this population they may be less likely to have these sorts of adverse events anyway because they're um, immunosuppressed. Yeah, immunosuppressed, and the older you get, the less likely you are to have those sorts of adverse events as well. Yep, great. Now Anna points out the table on the Atagi website um, was excellent. lists lots of doses of medic lists of medication doses and the medications that count. Anna, I was wondering if maybe the UMABs weren't that well described. But did you feel like they were well described? I mean, as as Callum says, you know, you can't really run into any harm if you get your UMABs confused and you give them all a third dose. But what did you think? I agree with you about the UMABs, um, that they weren't well described, but it was helpful for methotrexate, which doses they are, helpful for prednisolone and lists some of the um, UMABs. Um, I know Callum was saying which ones are, I think, the B cell suppressors. I have no idea. No one knows. So yeah. I, I, <laughs> Sorry, and, I knew as soon as I said that that no um, one I've got no idea what which ones do what. So my... Um, 
uh, philosophy to date has been I look at what they're on. And the other thing is that it also says something about if they're on multiple ones. So I've got someone who's on maybe 10 milligrams of prednisolone, a smallish dose of methotrexate, and a UMAB, and I've thought, you know, altogether that probably counts. So yeah. I've been, yep. um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm using it as a guide rather than a rule. Yes, and, and the Atagi <laughs> say that, that, you know, if you deem this person to be, you know, equivalently immunosuppressed, give them a vaccine. So there's yep. the gestalt and a nuance to it that you can apply yourself. Yep, I agree. So, but the UMABs have got me confused to start before I even started this. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Richard, just wanted to check your question. Third dose and immunocompromised, any issue, third dose and age. So I'm not quite sure what you mean. Um, Anyone over the age of 12 with these um, conditions? Yeah. yeah okay, great. Great, thanks. Um, I think that's probably it. We could better let you go, Callum, and um, move on. There was one more question for um, GPs and probably you, Kate. Um, third dose MBS item number, what are we using? Oh, Take that on notice. Good question. I will take that on notice. That is a great question. Um, and I know that there have been some issues sort of initially with how you actually were recording the third dose. And I know um, one of the other issues, and I'm not sure if we have any of the pharmacists online that may be able to sort of help us out with this. So if you guys, are there any pharmacists online? Um, just I know that. Look particularly the pharmacies, um, I think there was something from the Pharmacy Guild that um, potentially suggested that pharmacists may not be able to give the third doses at this point in time. Mm, okay. All right. So um, give us a shout out in the chat, pharmacists. Um, um, okay. Great. Okay. Thank you, Kate. Well, that's the end of that section. And we're going to now shift gear into a traditional echo. So this means that we're all going to focus now on um, COVID care and um, bring, you can put questions in the chat if it's about other things, but um, we might not have time to answer them, but please do put COVID care questions in the chat. Um, I'm going to hand over to you, Karen, unless you want me to read this bit. Happy to happy to take it. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks. Um, actually, what I might do is because I want you to start with your own introduction. Um, I'm just going to quickly pop this one in. We want you to understand the steps on the COVID care pathway, understand initial assessment and triage process, risk stratification, monitoring of low-risk COVID positive patients. Um, well, actually, we're going to go, are we going to get into that today? Are we going to do a bit of monitoring? We'll touch on it. Yeah. There's a slide just to touch on it. More yeah, of beautiful. an overview. overview. Yeah. Great, good. Understand the risk factors and indicators of clinical deterioration. We'll go into clinical deterioration next week, um, but just to understand the risk factors and discuss implementation of COVID care for low-risk patients in your practice. So thanks. Over to you, Karen. Thanks. Um, good morning, everyone, and thanks, Bianca. I'm dialing in from Wurundjeri country. Um, so... COVID positive pathways, it's an enormous, enormous topic. And as Bianca mentioned, I've been involved in about or nearly 500 COVID positive patients now. So I could tell a lot of stories, um, but it's about, and as Bianca said, this is the first of eight weeks to look at COVID positive pathways. So um, we'll make a start today and um, you'll have lots of questions. And hopefully after today, you'll be able to come away having at least some thoughts to take back to your practices to start um, bringing things together so that um, you are in a position to look after your your COVID positive patients without it feeling too unsupported and under-resourced. Um, 
So about me, um, so Karen Ahrens, I'm a rural GP. I've been a rural GP in the Macedon Ranges for about uh, 17 years. Um, and then the last 18 months, I've been working uh, at Jerawara Health Services, which is now Western Health, out at Bacchus Marsh with their Hospital in the Home program. Um, and that was born of uh, a necessity for, there were back in April, March, April, there was no COVID positive pathways. There was just patient results coming in with positive results and who's going to look after them and I and the whole health service um, decided that they would grow up their HITH program um, and that included both low and medium acuity um, at, at that point in time um, so that's that's the sort of 70% were probably low and the remainder medium um, so I've had a lot of um, patients, COVID positive patients, and I've had a lot of um, sort of experience, I guess, looking across multiple levels of wellness and unwellness and what that means and what happens and what needs to happen. Um, the team, that's a photo of the team, um, and that included um, medical, nursing and admin. Um, and with regards to monitoring, it was a real mixture of telehealth, whether that was video or phone, and oximetry for our medium risk. And then, as I mentioned, there was all the issues around where do you send them, escalations and step-down care. Thanks. Um, uh, so things to keep in mind. Oh, and this was a great slide that I came across, which is really just to say why, why GPs are really well positioned to look after um, COVID patients and all of this stuff you all know, you know, you know your patients. Um, we give holistic care as GPs um, and some of the things that we're experts at, we're experts at assessing patients and saying, is this patient well enough to be home or do I need to do something and escalate it? COVID or not COVID, that, that's, that's a bread and butter consultation. Um, and the other stuff's fairly self-explanatory. Um, and we are advocates for our patients as well. Um, they're not in a system they're our patients and their households are our patients often as well um, so things to keep in mind as we move forwards is that this is all based on oh back up Gemma this is all based on um, my experience and we're going to have a look at some slides after we have a little think about this case that you've just had a sneak few of um, we're going to have a a look at some pathways, some examples, um, and some risk stratifications, which um, I might get in trouble because I think I've deviated not only focusing on that, but we're going to have a look at a few bits and pieces, uh, as well as risk stratification and some monitoring slides and some risk factors for deterioration, just so you can see the big picture. We're not going to drill down on any of that stuff because we've got eight weeks to cover that, and there's plenty to put into that. Um, but what I was going to say was that what I'm talking about today is, is born of my experience and you will find there are lots of um, documents that have pathways and risk stratifications and monitoring tools and all this sort of stuff and they're all great but they're all a little bit different so um, I guess don't get hung up on the minutiae of the, of the details of today because what we as a regions look at you know we'll be looking at might be a little bit different from that so we'll use it as a tool to guide our, our, our thinking today um, and as um, both uh, Bianca and Kate have mentioned uh, Safer Care Victoria um, and, and, and certainly in our region um, BHS are developing frameworks as we speak which should be out hopefully out suit to help sort of support what the pathway looks like and where GPs fit into that and what what we as GPs need need to know 
Okay, so I have snuck a case in early because I actually wanted to get you guys thinking early. So I've broken tradition. I've, I'm a new speaker at um, Echo and I've already, um, I'm getting thumbs up for you. I'm, I'm not in trouble um, because I actually think it's good for you to start thinking about this and then we'll move on to some discussion and then we'll come back to this case again at the end and see if anything's changed for you. So this is an exercise for you. Pop your um, info in the yeah, thoughts in the chat if you would or, or or put your hand up and come off speaker. I'm not sure Bianca can. Um, oh no, they can it. wait. They can wait. You just go. Um, okay. We're gonna we're gonna throw around the um, these questions. We're hoping okay. to keep about 15 minutes to get them to ask you questions about this after your okay. pressing. Yeah. No worries. I'm on my echo training wheels. <laughs> um, so th this is the case. So as I talk over the next little bit about um, the things that I'm talking about, can you have a think about this case? Um, and have a think about what that means for you as a practice. What will you need to know, to have access to, to have talked to your colleagues about, um, etc. There's a whole host of things to think about in order for you to take this patient on. So if just so you understand what it says. So basically there's a triage, they've been triaged, there's low risk, which we're about to touch on in a sec, which saying they're a really appropriate patient to be managed in the community by their GP. This is them, you're their usual GP. Will you take them on? What do you need to know? So that's that. And Bianca, you can slip, skip, slip, skip the next slide and go to the following one if you would. No worries. And I'm just gonna give you a, um a what about seven minutes thank you no Cheers. problem so so this is an example of a pathway um and if if you're going to simplify it basically lab gives positive result public health unit does an initial initial triage um uh then you they get stratified into med, low, medium and risk, uh, high risk. The low ones go to the GP, the middle ones go to the HIT program, the high ones go to the hospital. Very gross simplification. And moving forwards, um, there will be a self-monitoring. That's a low, low, um, a self-monitoring stream as well, which um, are patients who don't have a GP, don't need um, monitoring by a GP and they may self-refer themselves to you. So, um, where will GPs get their referrals from? So they'll get them from the triage, a triage unit, potentially. They'll get them from pathology directly. Sometimes if you've ordered the test, you might know well before someone contacts you to tell you. You might know from the patient because the patient could call you themselves. Um, sometimes they get texts or find out, finds out early, or sometimes it'll be step down care from hospital or HIF programs. So that's where you guys might um, get your referrals from so you can pop to the next slide now thanks GMR so this is an example of what might happen at the triage level um, and I'm just going to sidestep with regards to the triage this table for a moment and talk about it more broadly as to where does this happen at what level so I've mentioned there's a positive result the public health unit will do a quick um, tracing call etc they might be the ones notifying the patient that they're positive and then they'll send the, the information to a triage unit 
in in Melbourne, certainly in the northwest, which is the area that I've had a lot to do with, um, it's there's a unit called CoHealth that's combined with RMH, and they've grown up a triage unit that assesses all of those patients and then streams them out to the low, medium, and risk. And they use a similar risk stratification to this. At a regional level, it will vary somewhat, um, and so that may happen. So in our region, I know Ballarat. Um, health services is looking at um, it or is currently growing up a triage unit. Um, some smaller regional health services may choose to take that role on themselves um, and and some may not. So that will vary a bit. But this is just a bit of an example of some of the things that are looked at. So some of the risk factors and some of the um, uh, some of the symptoms at onset at that, that time. What hasn't been included there is day, what day they're at as well. So sometimes what day they are on after their uh, symptom onset, because as you may know, um, early on you're unlikely to have symptoms. They tend to develop a bit later, so that might be put into it. And the other thing, oh, they have vaccinated is in there now. Um, that wasn't in obviously previously. The other thing to think about is, and, and this is with regards to, to the low risk ones, they're actually really, really well. You know, as a general rule, they're, they're pretty easy to manage. That they And from my experience last year, as I said, so what, 70% of 450, I don't know, maybe 300 or so patients, it was a new program. So we didn't know what we didn't know. We didn't know whether they were going to get sick at that stage. So it seemed like a good thing, and it was a good thing to do, to keep them, to know that these patients were being cared for. Um, but we did very little for them. The nurses called them every few days. Um, they didn't need oximetry. They had it because we didn't know that they didn't need it. I know some pathways suggest oximetry for all patients. And hey, if it's available, that's great. Um, but is it really needed? In my opinion and experience, I don't think any of those those folk deteriorated. So that's just interesting to keep in mind from a, a risk when we're risk stratifying. Um, that, that, that mostly that they get it right in so much as those low risk ones are pretty straightforward patients. The other thing to keep in mind, I, I've put a few dots in there. One is the obesity one in the low risk. I'd argue that. I think pretty much all of our um, obese patients deteriorated and needed um, transfer to hospital, at least 80% of them. Um, and I've put a star next to asthma there because I, um, I would argue that previous asthma, so even if it's not active asthma, um, but past asthma in my experience was one that we saw generally deteriorated as well. Um, so that's a kind of a bit of an overview of the risk stratification that's, that's used. Um, and you can move on, thanks Gemma, to the next slide. And these are some of the other things that are considered at that point in time as well. Um, but obviously, even though a triage unit will be asking all of these things, you, you're the experts on these patients. And so you'll be considering all of these things too at time of acceptance of referral and your first call. Um, so, I mean, these are all pretty obvious, but, you know, are they okay to isolate at home? You know, are they going to be able to get food and medicine? Um, um, how are they going to be able to, do they understand what's happening? Um, which which brings me to, there. there is certainly in the Melbourne side of things, there's a patient resource pack and a GP resource pack, which, pack, which I imagine will be um, both of which you will need copies of so that you know what the patient gets and what the, um, what, what the information that you guys need. Um, 
you can jump on thanks Gemma I think I'm I think I'm running out of time to keep going this is just now I there is as you can tell I could talk about this for days and days because I'm really passionate about it and I think it all makes sense um, and I've seen a lot but we're not we're not really going into detail on this this is just one example and this will change but this is one example of that next stage of once you've taken the patient on of monitoring uh, how frequently you monitor them is obviously of consideration um, and whether you use phone or video again in my experience I would argue I had no need for any phone con oh, sorry any video consultations with the low risk cat categories um, I'm not touching on today the medium risk, but I do recognise that, and we'll talk about that in another session, I'm hoping, um, but I do recognise that a lot of you as GPs, if your health service takes on that Heath role regionally, if that's not centralised, if that's you, that that will end up being you guys that are managing those medium risk patients as well. And so thank you. That will need um, obviously more, more drilling down on. This is just a touch on this, so you've got a bit of a feel for it. Um, and so there's an example of a medium risk one. And, and in that setting, sometimes videos was quite useful and oximetry was essential. Um, okay, thanks, Gemma. So, and this is just a touch on, um, we're not talking about this because it's coming up in later sessions, deterioration and points of escalation, but this is obviously really important stuff because um, as GPs, you're looking after these patients, particularly if you are looking after the medium risk ones as well, but even the low risk ones, I guess sometimes they can surprise us and um, become unwell. So obviously understanding um, the deterioration process, and we'll touch on that in another week, and what the red flags are. In the meantime, all of this stuff is available um, at sites such as Health Pathways, um, uh, and um, sorry, I was just half seeing questions in the chat. We'll come to those. Um, uh, Health Pathways and the Safer Care Victoria and the RACGP has some really great um, guidelines as well. Um, as far as, and this is just a sort of a sneak peek on things moving forwards, but as far as points of escalation, at, certainly in the Grampians region, I know Ballarat is looking, moving to, um, but ha um, now you can backtrack for a sec, um, is moving to the consultant, the consultant on call. Now my understanding is, and I'm new to this region, I must confess, but my understanding is that that cons COVID consultant has been available throughout anyway. This is not new news. What is new news is that the paediatrics team is really excited and enthusiastic about providing support as well. And so they will be a point of reference. Um, thanks, Gemma. Um, there will be, I just wanted to um, point out that there'll be um, a Safer Care Vic is looking to roll out um, more information on all of this and there'll be one or two sessions in the next few weeks and they run on a Wednesday and when they, they'll be marketing those to all the regional and rural GPs, specifically rural and regional GPs. So I do recommend getting to, um, I don't know if it'll be one or two sessions, but those if, if you can or send someone from your practice to do so. Um, I, because I'm not talking about deterioration, I did just want to highlight a few things um, regard that we haven't touched on, but that will be touched on or that you do need information about. So more research on oximetry, um, the ambulance process, whole household care, 
wraparound care, you know, tapping into your existing um, communities and saying, well, who's going to be looking after them if they need food supplies or financial support? And I know the public health unit's been reaching out to all the civic sort of leaders, the the, the LGA leaders, VicPol and um, the health services to develop some health protection working groups. So getting getting um, in, some, in on those would be really useful. Um, pharmacy supplies, you know, uh, will your pharmacies deliver? These are things to consider. Home visits as a sidestep. We've done, I've done not a single home visit in the last 18 months and haven't had need to. If they're sick enough to need a home visit and I can't solve it on video telehealth, then they're generally sick enough to need admission to a hospital, in my opinion. And after hours is obviously another one. Um, thanks, Bianca. Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. We'll leave it this morning with the PHN update. I'm going to now throw over to Linda to talk about how the PHN's um, supporting us at this time. Cheers. Thanks, Bianca. Morning, everybody. Um, yeah, definitely a lot of activity by our COVID team at the moment in gathering information from both our public health units um, and local health services on COVID care pathways and the intersection with general practice. So definitely, yeah, lots of work happening. This is also alongside what's happening and what's being offered from a Commonwealth and state perspective as well around resources. So we, all this information will be, we'll get it up on our website so that we've got a really clear and clean um, repository of this information, but definitely this sort of session just helps clarify um, where we need to be focusing. Um, just a quick update on the EOIs we've got out at the moment. Well, we've only got one active at the minute. The in-home closed last Friday. We've had, quite, I think we had maybe up to eight or 10 applicants and we're just working through the process of, of getting those um, practices onboarded. We've also got um, the maximising our COVID delivery, um, vaccination delivery EOI out until I think it's 5pm today it closes. Again, that's a $1,500 grant if you'd like some extra funding to support doing some after hours work or just um, targeting vulnerable populations in your area, that would be great. Otherwise, there's also a one-off payment of $500 if you just like to order up to your full Pfizer allocation and um, we can send that over to the public health units and they can to um, have more stock. Um, we keep seeing practices pop, put their hand up to get onto um, the vaccine rollout. So that, that's good. So we've got 131 practices now um, involved in the rollout in our region, which is great. The onboarding process is really quick. It's probably taking about two weeks from the EOI going into being onboarded. So that's really improved. And also just in regards to excess doses, generally, if you've got excess Pfizer, we can find a home for it or we'll, we can arrange um, or put you in contact with each of the public health units to transfer it there. AstraZeneca, not so easy now. Um, the Commonwealth are putting it together a process um, just so you just need to contact the VOC um, to let them know it's um, hard for us to find a home for AZ with other practices now. So that's just happening there. And I just thought just as a little update on pharmacy, there's the complete list there. Actually, I should put the link in the chat. But there's 79 pharmacies in our region, across the PHN region, that have Moderna. So they're starting to 
yeah, really make, hopefully make some impact in the space as well. So I think that's it for now. Thanks, Bianca. Great. Thanks, Linda. Um, so um, grab the evaluation and let us know how we can keep improving these sessions. Um, and uh, we'll send out notes. Uh, we'll send out a summary of the chat and the discussion and all of um, Karen's slides will come to you as a PDF. All the links will be referenced. So you'll get that in a few days time. We put this out as a podcast. We're also going to make Karen's didactic into a webinar. So you can let colleagues know that COVID care education at Westwick PHN started and and uh, we're trying to make that as accessible to everyone as possible so please do um, share your learnings um, with your colleagues um, so that we can all build confidence in this area um, we're going to aim to um, answer those questions that you put in the chat and, and keep building our local knowledge um, we're already seeing COVID by the sounds of it and I'm hearing from both public health units that um, when they're doing those interviews that some of these COVID patients have consulted with GPs with say you know sore throats who've been prescribed antibiotics but a COVID swab hasn't been done so whether we think we're going to manage COVID or not it sounds like we're already doing it um, so it may be presenting to us as a SCOVID um, so do keep remembering I know common things are common but now COVID's becoming common so keep it in your clinical algorithm that it's COVID until potentially proven otherwise and, and make sure we keep up our swabbing um, so that we can get those early diagnosis that's the best thing we can do in terms of preventing clinical deterioration is early diagnosis recognition and, and proactive management um, and um, and let's uh, you know start to kind of become more familiar with these pathways in case that uh, in the case as COVID becomes more and more endemic. So thanks for joining us this morning. We'll move into clinical deterioration next week. Karen Ahrens is going to take a well-earned break, which is um, well-earned, but we're going to miss you. Um, but we're going to um, welcome you back um, as soon as you're back and um, we'd love to keep um, dipping into your expertise because it's been really valuable. And I'm sure the GPs will um, all echo that sentiment. Um, so uh, we'll be with you and we're going to unpack this over the coming weeks. Thanks everyone for joining us and we'll see you next week reach out in the meantime through all the um, email addresses we've popped in the chat okay cheers take care everyone thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week google westfic phn project echo covid19 pandemic response network and you'll find a way to register by registering we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions and you'll also receive our resource pack that includes notes podcasts, webinars, slide decks, and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.